Being a thoroughbred horse trainer takes a lot of work and passion. It also requires a large team of people to make sure these racehorses are cared for properly. My guest on this episode explains everything that goes into the thoroughbred racing industry, how his family has made an impact on the sport in the United States, and how he's carrying on the tradition from Hall of Fame trainer Jack Van Berg, who is also his dad. Next on Sports in the Making. Thank you for joining me on Sports in the Making, a podcast where we find out what people in the sports and sports broadcasting industry do, how they've made an impact in the sports world, and how it all comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is episode number 21. In my sports broadcasting career, I've met some amazing people and developed some great relationships with fellow TV people, some who work in front offices, and professional athletes. But it's interesting to me that my guest on today's episode is someone I met six years before my first job in television, while I was a freshman at Arizona State University. We lived in the same dormitory, becoming lifelong friends, and it was there that I was introduced to horse racing at the highest level, and I became a fan not only of the sport, but of his family. His name is Tom Van Berg, and he's a thoroughbred horse trainer currently living near Louisville, Kentucky. He is the son of Hall of Fame trainer Jack Van Berg, who won the Kentucky Derby with Ali Sheba in 1987. And he's the grandson of Marion Van Berg, who is enshrined as a Hall of Fame trainer as well. So it's no surprise that the legacy continues with Tom. In this episode, we'll talk about what his childhood was like with his father, how he decided to become a trainer himself, and we'll talk a bit about what the industry is like as a trainer. This is my conversation with my good friend, Tom Van Berg. All right, Tom and I met at university, which we'll get to in a minute, but Tom's a horse trainer based in Louisville, Kentucky. And according to Equibase, which is a trade magazine for the horse racing industry, he's got, at the moment, $4.2 million in earnings on the track with nearly 200 wins in his relatively, I guess I'd say, short training career, even though he's been around it his whole life. He's the son and grandson of two Hall of Fame thoroughbred horse trainers, the late Jack Van Berg, who many know from his horse Ali Sheba, and Marion Van Berg. Tom, how are you? Thank you for joining me today. I'm doing great. Good to talk to you, Donnie. All right. So, Tom, first first off, uh, what are your responsibilities as a horse trainer? Um, being a horse trainer is kind of a it's a jack of all trades. Uh, first off, you're a basic caretaker. So you're a basic caretaker of an animal. You take care of their nutrition, uh, their fitness, their feet, make sure they're they're healthy, their feet are healthy, their teeth are healthy. You, you somewhat do, you don't actually do the dental work, but you notify the equine dentist when the, it's required. You notify the blacksmith to take care of their feet when it's required. And you do any day-to-day maintenance in between those those schedules. And then you then you have to, in, in, the, in particular in the racing industry, then you have to kind of prepare them for competition. And so you have to decide what uh, that level of horse uh, is going to achieve. And where he's going to pl- where you're going to place him, and then what distance, whether it's a shorter race, you want six furlongs, which is three quarters of a mile, or over a mile or longer, and maybe a grass horse or maybe a dirt horse. So there's there's different competitions and different races that they can compete in, and you have to determine to the best of your ability what that horse will specialize in, and um, prepare him for that. So there's there's a lot of different things, but you know I guess you could say it's it's mainly just a caretaker of an animal, and um, you do the best you can to, to make sure that animal is healthy and happy and fit and and ready to go when it comes time for competition how much did you grow up around your dad considering he was on the road quite a bit training horses in california and louisville and wherever he had uh, good horses yeah my actually my mother and father divorced when i was young 
And before that, even before that, my father was on the road most of the year. I would see him. I grew up in Columbus, Nebraska, which is a small town of about 20,000. And we had a livestock auction there. And he would come in about once a month to do what's called a Montana sale, which is they'd bring the cattle down from Montana and the farmers would buy the cattle. And it was a big sale. So he would come and actually be the auctioneer for that sale. And then the rest of the month, the auctioneer, the local auctioneers would do the smaller sales. And so I would see him probably once a month, unless it was the summertime. And then then in the summer, we'd either be at a race meet somewhere in the country or at a, one of our farms in, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and, and I'd be working at the farm there. But for the most part, during the school year, I was, uh, you know, he was on the road with the, the different various strings he had of, of horses, outfits that he had. And uh, I was in Nebraska going to school. So I, I rarely saw him during the during the school year. But in the summers, I saw him quite a bit. Well, we met at Arizona State University. We were both freshmen living in uh, Saguaro Hall, the dorms there. How did you get to Arizona State? Did you think you wanted to be a trainer? You wanted to, to do engineering, from what I believe. Yeah, that's correct. When I got out of high school, I was pointing towards uh, aerospace engineering. And I looked at uh, five different universities, uh, Iowa State, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, UCLA, Arizona State, and then a, a specialty aeronautical school called Embry-Riddle, which there was a uh, campus in Prescott, Arizona, and one in Florida. And uh, after my visits, I grew up in Nebraska, which is pretty brutal winters. And I went to Iowa State and got snowed in. I went to CU Boulder, and although it was sunny, it was nice. It was still cold and snowy. <laughs> I uh, went to UCLA and it was just, um, I was almost claustrophobic. It was a beautiful campus, but it was packed in the middle of Los Angeles. And then I got to Arizona State and it was like Shangri-La. Um, it was open, it was sunny, great weather. And and it was still within, you know, a five and a half hour drive of Los Angeles where my dad was based at the time. And so it, it probably academically uh, wasn't up to par with the other ones, but uh, it fit uh, to what I was looking for. And, and I really didn't look into actually the horses until after I graduated and um, uh, I kind of transitioned from uh, specialty in aeronautical engineering into uh, business management with an aeronautical engineering uh, minor. And I went that route. And then when I got out of college, you know, that there was a big layoff period for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing and Lockheed and, and they had those massive um, aerospace industry layoffs at the time. And so I traveled over in Europe. Um, I figured I was going to, work quite a bit the rest of my life. So I took a extended vacation to start off my career and traveled in Europe. And I was going to make my way uh, to Australia to work their summer uh, and bartending on the Gold Coast with a friend that I met from Australia. And the two ways you could get to Australia were either through uh, Tokyo, I believe, or Los Angeles. And so what I decided to do is I'd fly through Los Angeles and gave my friend from Australia a tour of the Southwest uh, and California, the West Coast. And then I would stay there and work a couple months for dad and make some money. And that'd meet him over there and, and we would uh, go bartend. And it never, I never left Los Angeles. I, dad got his hooks in me and, and I stayed out there ever since. So I just got to tell you that, you know, I grew up a sports fan, small town in Western Colorado. Didn't really watch horse racing much, except for obviously the Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, Preakness, all that stuff. But when I got to know you, I still specifically re remember there was one, I believe it was a Saturday morning, but I <laughs> yeah. remember sitting in my dorm and you run down the hall and said, come into Jeff's room. We got to, my dad's going to be on TV. 
And I'm thinking, what the heck? Your dad is going to be on TV. Who are you? Know, who's your dad? <laughs> so I remember seeing your dad on TV. He had Ali Sheba was in the race. I don't remember which race it was or what you know what it was, but I do know that he was a Kentucky Derby winner. And so suddenly everyone looked at you and was like, "Whoa, this kid's dad is is a big shot." And I think you know we all were like, "This is cool." But then we just developed a, a friendship from it and. You know, because of you, I went to California for the first time uh, for a, a party that your dad was having for a bunch of the horsemen and, and horse people. Um, you know, I got to rub a lot of elbows with some athletes, uh, Don and Charlie's up in Scottsdale, the steakhouse. I think there was a bunch of jockeys around the table and stuff. It was really my first exposure to that, that culture of it. And it was really cool. And then you and I had the chance to go to the Fiesta Bowl the national championship game that was uh, Notre Dame beating West Virginia. And we sat right behind George Went, if you remember. Uh, I do. You know, better known as Norm from Cheers. Um, so how? one thing that I like about you is you have this ability to bring people into your circle uh, and just create friendships. How do you do that? Well, I, you know, the horse racing is such a fringe sport, in my opinion. It, it used to be more mainstream. And when I when I – get involved with any, any, anything in my life, it's usually a passion for it. And it starts with a passion for it. And so when I have a passion for something, I enjoy sharing that with, with other people. And it's same thing with friendships and, and just any kind of relationship you have. And so when I got involved with horse racing, you know, it wasn't really that I wanted to go out and tell anybody, you know, my dad is a, a hall of fame horse trainer because, because he was really large in the industry, but outside of the industry, if you're not involved in it, you don't really know, the players in, in the industry, like you do in basketball or, you know, NFL or anything like that. And so I would always prefer to show people what it is to be in horse racing and to be a horse trainer than I would tell them. Cause it just, it didn't make sense for the most part to me when you try to explain it. And so to me, it really wasn't like my father was any kind of big deal to people that were in the racing industry. He was a pretty prominent figure in the industry. So I grew up just him being dad, yeah. And, um, and he was that way too. He was always, uh, wanted to bring people in and teach them and, and let them experience, you know, part of that lifestyle, uh, part of that industry. And so that's kind of where I got that basis from. It was always grounded. He grew up, you know, a hardworking individual, uh, on a, on a basically, you know, working with livestock as a as young age. And then his father got into horse, horse racing. So, that's where I saw it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a man that, that came with a silver spoon and, you know, had an elevated lifestyle his whole life. He worked very hard for everything he got, but he always remained, you know, remained grounded. And, and that's just kind of where I, I got it from. And I enjoy people. I enjoy sharing with people. And, you know, it's, it's just been something my whole life that I've kind of had a passion uh, being around people. And um, it was just, it was, it was fun to be able to share that with, with, you know, college friends and roommates and classmates and, and I've done that, you know, continually for the rest of my life. Well, and and that's what I I kind of appreciated, you know, you know, not just your friendship that I value, but meeting your dad for the first time. I mean, he's he's a very tall man, and and you know, very imposing and kind of intimidating. But it was something about him that you you're drawn to him, and he would make you feel like you were the most important person every time you talked to him. So I think you have a lot of that in you as well. I appreciate it. He was very much so. I mean, he was one of those people that when he walked, he walked in the room, you know, he would command the room by either by his stories or by, you know, any, any experiences that he had, you know, it's just, there's, 
he was one of those characters that's almost larger than life. The things that he, he has accomplished in his life and the things that he's done in his life are just you don't see much of that anymore. I mean, he was a when he when he used to do you know go to, to livestock auctions for his father, he got his pilot's license and would fly a plane. And I remember stories you know from his brother who was in the livestock business in Colorado back in the day when they would have blizzards, you'd have the instrument you know ratings that you had today. They would they would follow roadmaps and fly above roads through Kansas uh, to get to the towns to to find the airports to land to, to go to livestock auctions. <laughs> and if you think about that today, it's just, you don't hear stuff like that. I mean, he just always figured out a way to make things happen. I mean, I think when he was 15 years old, my, my grandfather had a string of horses in Detroit, Michigan at the old DRC race course. And dad with no navigation, just a, a Rand McNally map at 15 years old, drove a 18 wheeler, big semi-truck full of horses on two lane roads all the way to Michigan from Columbus, Nebraska. And, you know, today you, you hear that and you, you know, you might get put in jail if you had to try to get your son to do that. But <laughs> it's it's just a different way of, of people being raised. And, you know, it's a different era of people. And he, he worked really hard. And, you know, till till, you know, the day he passed away a couple of years ago, I mean, he was still probably one of the hardest working people, you know, that I've been around. And he continued that. And it was all based on passion. And, and he was the same way. He loved bringing people into his world. And and like you say, he had that knack for when he was with you, there wasn't anything else going on. He was involved with the person he was with and, and focused on them and, and showed an interest in them. And, and you know, and, and the amazing thing about him is I've never seen people work harder for a person. I mean, he would get people that didn't want to work and they would work night and day for him. He just had that ability yeah. around people. He was, a, he was a great leader, put it that way. He was a great leader because he would, he would lead by example and show people what, you know, how to do it. And then he would be right beside him doing it. So I think it was some, some really good qualities to be a horse trainers. He, he had all those qualities. You mentioned growing up, you didn't really have much contact with him. I think like a traditional family, understandably so, but how would you describe your dad as a dad? You know, it's tough because he, he really wasn't a traditional father in the sense for me. He was more that larger than life person that I knew if I ever needed anything, he would be there to help me. Um, he was, he was there with support. He was there, you know, any anytime he needed something, he would drop whatever was going on and and you know be there to support me. So it was never like I, I never had a lack of love from him or anything like that. It wasn't it wasn't one of those you know I love you families. He didn't say that all the time, but he showed you that more by his actions than than by words. That's one thing I never never had any insecurity in my life that that if something went wrong, if I got sideways with school or with a person or you know, have forbid if I ever got you know sideways with the law, which I never did, you know, he would, he was there and he was going to make things right and, and help you out and be there to support you. So, um, he was just one of those, those figures that, that you knew you had your back all the time. And, and even though he wasn't there physically, he was there, you know, in, in spirit and, and, uh, in support for me, you know, from day one until, uh, until he passed away. There's been a lot of things written about your dad. There's, there's some documentaries out there. Um, and then Chris Katulak, um, who is the CEO of Fauner Park in Grand Island, Nebraska, he and I were colleagues at TVG Network when I was a director there. So, you know, one of the nicest guys. Oh, I forgot guys, about that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. One of the nicest guys I've ever met. Uh, and uh, he, he had a good relationship with your dad. He wrote a book called Jack from Grit to Glory, the true story of Jack Van Berg, an American horse racing legend. When these things come out, do you learn more about your dad? Does it paint a better picture for you, or do you kind of hear that anyways? You know, what was really interesting about that book, I heard all those stories and lived through those stories growing up, but 
to read them from a book, uh, it was a lot more emotional for me. It, uh, for whatever reason, it just touched me in a different different way than than living them. And uh, to hear him, uh, you know, from the words of Chris Katulak, and, and he did such an incredible job with that book, it was just a different way. It was, you know, I guess maybe it brought back some of the memories mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, the, some of the stories that, that that I went through and, and some of the stories that were before my time and that I had heard. Um, but it was such a great compilation of, of dad's life and, and just the, the character that, that he was as a person. Um, Chris did an incredible job with that book to, to bring that out. And if anybody's a horse racing fan, it's, it's, it's a really incredible read. And like, I, you know, you'll, you'll find in the book that you just don't find people like that much anymore. Uh, there's just, there was so much about them that they did and there's nothing they couldn't do. And if they had a, uh, you know, something they wanted done, they found a way to get it done. And, and. You see, you know, these these people today that that are super successful, you know, it's, it's just they have to have a passion for it. And that's what dad had a passion for. He, he could care less about vacation. He didn't want to go to the beach. He didn't want to go snow skiing. I mean, his work was his love and his passion. And, and when he woke up in the morning from the minute he woke up until the, the his eyes went to you know close at night, that's all he thought about was horses. And he had an incredible mind for it. And he would tell you that, you know, he wasn't uh, the smartest kid out there, but. You know, he was uh, a, a genius when it came to horses. I'm sure you've learned a lot from your dad on in terms of just being a person, because I can I can tell it's carried over to that, and you'll continue that legacy. But what what did you learn most about training horses from your dad? You know, the, the hard thing for me was I didn't spend a lot of time with him, regrettably, you know, on the racetrack. When I got out of college, I went out to L.A. and like I said, I was going to on my way to Australia, but he got his hands in me. And at that time, I think workman's comp was out there was, was like 33 cents of the dollar. It was outrageous. And they had horse racing, thoroughbred horse racing lumped in with quarter horse racing, which at that time was uh, particularly more accident prone than, than thoroughbred was. And they had it in with the textiles, which is a, was a large immigrant workforce. And there were a lot of, a lot of claims in there so that it was a really high work comp. And so, uh, dad put me together with a gentleman out there and my job was to to work on a workman's compensation co-op out there in California. And we ended up getting the work comp from 33 cents on a dollar to about 10 cents on the dollar. And while I was doing that, he said, you know, you're not doing anything at five in the morning. Why don't you come into the barn with me and we'll go over the horses and, and we'll train. And so that's kind of when my, my instruction began with my father was that wasn't until after I was after, out of college. Mm-hmm. And so I was out there for like three years in California and he sent me out on the road to Exarbon in Omaha, Nebraska. And that was happened to be there last year that Exarbon ran. And with the condition that he would come to whatever track I was at with a string of his horses for two days out of the week. Well, that never materialized. And so basically he threw me out there with enough rope to hang myself. And, you know, I could either hang myself or pull myself up. And, <laughs> and I learned kind of a lot of it by mistakes. And, you know, once in a while he would come in, maybe once a month, you know, he would come in. And so uh, that deal that I, that I, you know, set when we were going out with the string of horses for him never materialized. And so I went from Nebraska, the last meet there to have spent a year in Maryland and then moved to Kentucky in 96 to Louisville and all the time running horses, a string of horses for him. And then we ended up developing a 550 acre training facility just outside of Louisville in early two thousands uh, for a client. And I had a hundred horses out there for him and still uh, dad was based out in California. And then I think in 03, maybe I ended up taking a stable out of my own uh, till 08. My oldest son was de- developed leukemia. I was diagnosed with leukemia. And so I backed out of the game for 10 years. And so all that time, you know, 
what I anticipated, uh, spending time learning from dad, hands on, uh, was very accelerated for the first three years in Los Angeles. And then it really spread out and, and you know, was kind of uh, diluted. Um, so, you know, the rest of the time, and, it was, and that was probably one of my biggest regrets that I did get to spend more time with him uh, hands on on the track because he, he was such a brilliant horseman and so much of it was intuitive that it was hard to just talk about it unless you were actually at the, the, the stable that he was at and saw it with your eyes, what he was talking about, what he was seeing. And so I wish I spent a lot more time with him and it just never worked out that way. So now how do you... How have you taken his philosophies to make it work for you? Are you doing things similar? Do you alter things based on the current horse racing industry? How how does that work for you? Yeah, it's it's kind of really changed dramatically um, from when Dad was what is that is when uh, when he was at his peak. Um, and actually, uh, my assistant right now, Samuel Almarez, was with Dad uh, forever. In fact, he was the groom of Gate Dancer, the the person responsible for taking care of Gate Dancer when. He won the Preakness in 84. So he's been with us nearly 40 years between me and my father. And so Sammy still does a lot of things in the barn that, you know, in the fashion that dad did. Uh, and so I was some, sometimes there's, there's newer, you know, technologies, there's new, you know, training techniques or whatever you want to, you know, whatever road we go down that have been proven to do differently than what we did in the past. And so it, it takes me some time to say, Hey, Sammy, let's try this uh, and, and move in this direction as opposed to what we used to do. And, and so there's a little, it's a little bit of a hybrid of, of old school horsemanship and, and modern um, technology and modern fitness. And, and you bring some more things in that, you know, modern science that you, we didn't know at the time, you know, mm-hmm. you did things back in the, in the, in the older day, old days based on what you thought and read the horse. And it might not have been the exact correct thing that we would do today based on science and nutrition or fitness and, you know, heart rate and what might you have or bone development or muscle development or, you know, lung capacity and all that stuff is, is the science has changed. And, and, you know, we've been more um, enlightened into the way, you know, people or animals handle nutrition or fitness and all that. So there's, there's new things that you learn every day and that you have to employ in your, in your game to and incorporate into your training program that, that wasn't around when dad, you know, dad was really at his peak. What does a typical day and week look like for a horse trainer? Well, you know, the thing about horse training is it's 24, you know, seven, basically 365. You, you, that's the hard part about the game is you have to force yourself to take breaks because, you know, typically with a nine to five job, you have weekends off with horse racing. The weekends are typically pretty heavy with the better horse horses running on the weekend, the better race on the weekends. So Saturday and Sunday are your big days, Monday and Tuesday, typically for most tracks, are days when they do not run. So Monday and Tuesdays are your days off, but you still go in, you know, horses require care nonstop. And so you, you have to be there or you have to have an assistant there or someone there almost all the time to monitor the horses and make sure they're okay. They're healthy. They're not in trouble. Um, horses have a knack, it's like the better the horse is and the more they can run, they have a knack of getting in more trouble, whether, you know, they get down in their stall or, you know, get bumped or bruised or, or run into something. And, and, you know, you have to, to, pay attention to them all the time so typically your day would be uh you usually get to the track around 4 30 in the morning and and the reason you have to do that is because at racetracks they train in the morning early in the morning from anywhere from 5 30 or 6 till about 10 o'clock because usually in the afternoons they're running so horses are are creatures of schedule and so you train in the same time around the same time every day and you run them when they typically run the same time on those days and so you train from 5 or 5 30 to 6 to 10 o'clock uh, they'll have lunch, 
And then if you have racing that day, you go home, you know, get ready for the races, go back, get your horses ready, run, cool them out, feed them. And again, at night you get done by you know, somewhere around six o'clock. So it's, it's almost a 12 to 13 hour day on your typical day. Um, so it, it is not a, an easy job by any means, but it, like, you know, we talked about earlier that, that people that are in this game that are in this industry have to have a passion for it because it is, it's long hours. It's hard hours. The highs are very high. The lows are very low. It's something that I guess if, if you don't have a passion for it, you get burned out on very quick. Yeah. Okay. The, the horse trainer, uh, crew team positions and relationships, who, who's, who is a significant part of making a, a thoroughbred racehorse successful? The thing about it is each probably organization has a little different hierarchy, but typically you have a horse trainer who is the head. It's basically like your CEO of your corporation. Then you have an assistant trainer, which would be like your, your VP. Uh, and he takes care of your day-to-day operation. Usually, you know, for the most part, like the hirings or the firings of employees, the day-to-day operations of the barn. Uh, if, a, if the stable is large enough and if you have, you know, I would say somewhere in the range of 30 plus horses, then you would have what's called a foreman, a shed row foreman. And he kind of, he's the kind of the, the uh, human relations guy. He takes care of uh, the employees and makes sure they're doing everything right uh, and keeps them on track. And then it goes down from there. So you have exercise riders who are the guys that get on the horses or guys or gals that get on the horses in the morning and on the horses day to day. Then you would have your grooms who are the, the people that take care of the horses. And usually there's anywhere from, they take care of anywhere from three to five horses, typically, depending on their ability and their experience. Uh, and then you'd have what's called hot walkers. And the hot walkers are the, the ones responsible for cooling the horses out after they run or, or train. And then once in a while, you'll probably employ uh, particularly a jockey. And he'll come in and breeze the horses sometimes in the morning if you're getting ready for a race. And, and you would use a jockey typically when they're getting close to a race. So you want that jockey to be on them and get familiar with that horse that he's going to ride in the afternoon. And then your, your ancillary group or your extra groups or your outside people like your feed men that, that supply you with the feed and the hay and the straw, your veterinary that comes and takes care of your medical needs for the horses, and then your blacksmith and your dentist that take care of the feet and the teeth. And uh, that's kind of your probably your, your in, a, in a generalized sort. You may have chiropractors that come in. You may have therapy personnel that, that can do. I mean, these horses get incredible care. They have hydro spas on the backside where the horse goes in and get a cold water uh salt water massage basically a spa they have uh chiropractors they have acupuncturists uh they have um laser therapy they have ice therapy uh, i mean they have um, all kinds of different things that take care of these horses needs and then they're treated like a top-notch human athlete and and they get everything they need uh from the, the top line of nutrition to uh, the top line of therapy that, that makes them be able to perform their best. So there's, there's a pretty good extended range of people that, that come on the backside and on the, on the stable side of the track to take care of these horses. And as a trainer, you're kind of the CEO that organizes all that and oversees all that. And that's amazing that you had to learn all of that shortly after getting out of college. And, uh, and here you are 20 some years later, still doing it. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about horse, racing industry is it's really a old school type industry you don't really go they, they do have schools for it but typically the the path that most people take are they just go in the, the backside and start working in the barns and you know either your family's in it or you knew somebody that was in it or you had a passion for it and you start out maybe as a hot walker and move up to a groom to move up to an assistant trainer or foreman 
uh, and, and some of the, the jockeys or, or the lighter uh, people jump into the, the, the riding side of it, you know, the exercise riders in the morning. And, and so you build your way up through, through experience and, and it's, you know, those, those long hours and, and the people that are willing to be there 18 hours out of the day are the ones that usually go on with the business and you show that passion, they become successful in their own right. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, a lot of work to become successful in, in this business. It's not one of those ones you can go to school and become a doctor. You, you, you There's no real school for uh, the horse industry and you learn by, by being, you know, around the horse. And that was one of the, the benefits that I had when my father was out in California is, you know, he had a string of 50 horses. And so I get to see 50 different examples every day of what to do or what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so you, you kind of expedite your learning. Whereas if you're in a smaller stable, you have eight, uh, you know, it takes me, you know, six days as long, you know, just to see the same amount I would in one day under, under my father's stable. So right. uh, that, that was a big help is seeing the numbers. And then I think typically when you see super successful uh, horse trainers or jockeys, it, it becomes a number thing. Just like, you know, they say the statistics of college or college football to pro football, especially in quarterbacks is the numbers of, you know, the number of reps that a quarterback takes in college usually translates well to the number, you know, how successful they are in the pros. And the same thing with, with, you know, horse racing is the, the number of reps you take every day of horses you see things you see what not to do or what to do what works what doesn't work helps you become a a more successful individual in this in this industry i think we all know uh you know if we've watched ever watched the horse racing event on tv that the trainer is typically one of the key figures in the victory of of a horse but the trainer also has to deal with ownership and the business side of it how does that work trying to get horses uh, maybe you solicit horses to to a potential owner if it works that way. How does that all come together for for someone who does what you do? <laughs> I, I probably uh, probably should figure that one out a little better than I have. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the The problem with me is I'm I'm a very straightforward and honest person, and my father was the same way. And horse racing is not you can't look at it as as an investment. And if what I mean by that is if you're getting in the horse racing business, is it's Kind of like I always said, if you're going to Vegas, you go to Vegas to a casino with money that you can afford to lose. And if you lose it, you're, you're fine when you go home. Uh, you don't go with money that you don't have to lose, uh, thinking that you're going to make money. And so that's the same way the business is a horse. So I, it's hard for me to talk people into the game. Uh, the people that, that I usually get involved with as, as clients are people that enjoy the horses. And so they come out and they learn. Uh, they get to spend time with their horses. Uh, I teach them, you know, why we do, you know, what we do and, and, you know, why we point for race that we point and, and, and kind of teach them the game from my side of it, not necessarily as a client. Uh, I don't deal with, with the people that are in it trying to, for the most part, you know, make stallions or have broodmares or where it's a commercial operation. I've never really been involved with that kind of clientele. Uh, not that I, you know, would enjoy it. They have usually the, the better bloodstock and the better horses, uh, but it's also, it's a, you know, a higher risk game and it's it's a it's just a little bit elevated game i enjoy um you know the feet on the ground being in the stalls i, I don't enjoy um necessarily promoting myself to go out there and say hey you know i would do a better job with this horse or you fit really well in my barn you know, there's a lot of great horsemen out there i just enjoy being with the horses i enjoy teaching people about the horses and um you know it's just a it's really a a, a blessing to be out with these animals every day you know i was away for it for 10 years uh, when my son was was being treated for uh, leukemia, mm-hmm. and I didn't really realize how much I missed it until 
you know, my dad started, uh, you know, his health started failing and I got back in to help him out and, and to get back in the barn with those horses was just, uh, it was one of those aha moments where, you know, everything was right again. Uh, I didn't yeah. realize kind of the, the hole that I had in my, my life that I, I wasn't around. And so to me, it's, it's that part of the game is I've never been, you know, really successful. My dad always had a large stable and had clients, you know, from all over the world. Uh, mine has been more on a, almost a friendship basis where I'm, you know, probably closer individually to the, the clients that I train for. And, um, and they spend a lot more time at the track and at the barn seeing their horses than, than I think your typical trainer and typical outfit, you know, in these right. days, you know, there's, it's a lot more of a business end of it now. And, and the bigger stables are the ones that produce, you know, the, the bigger winners. And then the, that just kind of multiplies from the sales and, and so forth. And so it's a, it's a little different side of the industry. And, I, and you know, it's, it's kind of also been a, an, during this, this, the time of the COVID right now, those last few months, it's kind of been a blessing because I can't imagine being one of those outfits that has 60, 70, 80, 90, 150 horses and, right. you know, not be able to run, run in multiple jurisdictions right now, you know, and, and trying to talk to those people and say, Hey, you know, we still have to train these horses, but you can't run for two and a half months or three months. Um, we have no chance of making any income. And, and so it's, it's creates a lot of, um, you know, interesting and chaotic, uh, decision-making processes that, that when, with a smaller stable, now we can kind of, we're a little more agile and we can move around and it's not as impactful as, as it is on some of the larger stables. Well, speaking of that, how have you been able to deal with this COVID-19? Because I think Kentucky is one of the few states that uh, has at least allowed more racing than some of the other states. Well, Kentucky actually was on, they came back sooner, I should say, than most states. But what was, was lucky for me is we were based at Oaklawn Park in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And Oaklawn was one of the, I think, four tracks that continued to run. And, and the reason they were able to do that is because they were racing at the time. And so they didn't have to bring in any new horse populations, any new, um, you know, pe people populations. Whereas if like Churchill would have started up, say, you know, when they were going to originally run the Derby in May, they would have brought horses in the end of March. All of these horses and people would have, of in the help, you know, that take care of the horse would have been coming in from areas that say fairgrounds were had a pretty big COVID outbreak. New York had a pretty big COVID outbreak. Florida didn't as much, but you're still bringing, you know, people in from you know multiple locations that you can't control as, as much as you could like say at Oakland where they're already running and the, the population was already there and you can start testing on a daily basis and so I was very fortunate to be at Oakland and, and we were able to continue to run to the end of the meet and last year they actually extended their meet almost three weeks to coincide with their last day of running was the, last, the day of the Kentucky Derby and so what happened this year now is they moved there big race, which is the Arkansas Derby, which was typically three weeks before the Kentucky Derby, they moved it actually to Derby Day, and we're using it to Kentucky Derby Day, which was able to use it now as a Kentucky Derby prep, which is going to run in September, so they carried that big race to the final day of their meet and had their big day with all the stakes races on their final day, and so we, I mean, we didn't miss a bump. We didn't miss, I should say, we didn't miss a beep, is we kept on running at Oakland until the very end. Now, there was a delay, slight delay from Churchill opening from the end of Oakland. And so uh, Churchill did a great job of bringing the different jurisdictions into Churchill. They started, I think, the 11th, May 11th with the fairgrounds, which was uh, Churchill owns the fairgrounds. And so that was one of their tracks that actually closed early. And so that, that track hadn't run for, I think, about three weeks. And so they brought them May 11th and 12th. They allowed the fairgrounds to come and tested everybody coming in. 
uh, did the swab test for everybody coming in. And then uh, 11th to 12th was, I think, fairgrounds. 13th to 14th was New York horses. 15th and 16th was Florida horses. And 17th and 18th was Arkansas. And so they brought them in in waves to make sure they kind of kept the population apart and, and tried to control uh, if they did have any positives from, from the employees on the backside before it got into the general population. And so they did a really good job of bringing it in. And then it, so far it's, it's gone pretty much without a hitch. They've, they've kept running, but like you say there at the time, you know, people didn't know what was going on. They thought racing was going to quit saying Anita shut down. You know, they've been plagued with injuries from last year, going back to last year, and right. then the COVID and the health department out there, you know, California's kind of on a slippery slope with, with some of the activists out there wanting to get racing uh, abolished out there. Uh, New York had some positives on the backside, uh, you know, a, a greater number of positives, not huge, maybe seven or not, you know, seven to nine, somewhere in there right. on the backside. And so they had to quarantine those. So they shut racing down and, and New York was a hot spot. New Orleans got to be a hot spot. So they shut fairgrounds down. So at the time, the only people that were really running were Gulfstream Park in, in Southern Florida, Tampa Bay Downs in Tampa. Um, let me see Fonder Park where you were talking about Chris Katulak. Uh, they were running and then Oakland Park. And, and what they found was that with no other sports going, horse racing got the spotlight. And, and they had incredible days of handle. Uh, people from all over the world were betting on the races. Even Fonda Park set a record. They extended into their meet. And I think they went over 100 million uh, in handle, which, which is incredible for the, the, you know, the size of track that Fonda is. Right. But uh, there were records set left and right. And so I think what it really showed is that people, I think we have our, our view of sports now is so oversaturated. You know, there's more football games. They always push for more football games each year. Uh, college wants more games. Pro wants more games. They get more basketball games. The playoffs go longer. You know, hockey expands. And I think there's so much out there, content out there for people to view that that horse racing is one of the ones that kind of gets, you know, shuffled aside. Yeah. Uh, but when when it when it's the only thing out there, I mean, people in this country love sports. And, and I think they really took to horse racing. I think, you know, hopefully created some fans that – that really hadn't paid attention to it before and really started to, to watch it, enjoy it. And I know I had, I had friends here that were calling me on a daily basis, you know, asking me for tips on races, you know, oh, what do you, what do you like at Oakland today, Tom? I never <laughs> even knew they watched a horse race in their life, <laughs> you know, but they, they, they couldn't wait. They were stuck at home, not doing anything or between conference calls and, and watch races. So it was an interesting, um, you know, change for, for our society is to see, you know, how they, they took horse racing and, and, built it up and watched it and created almost a new group of fans. And so we'll see if that continues once, you know, the other sports start coming back into the fold. Well, and you mentioned the, the, there's a lot of saturation for a lot of different sports. Horse racing used to be the king of sports. Is that the right term for it? Yeah. That's used to call it the king. Yeah. Yeah. King of sports, yeah. And, and you know, it's kind of fallen back. I think TVG, uh, the horse racing network has, you know, somewhat revived it a little bit, but I think that, it's, I mean, it's such a majestic sport. It's fun to be out there on the track. You get to see the horses and stuff. From your perspective, what pre-COVID was the future in your mind for for horse racing, and and now that this has happened, what if you have a different take on it? What's that? Well, actually, we're going back to it. it's the sport of kings. Sport, sport of kings. Sport that's of kings. what. That's right. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, you know, the thing that that will be interesting to see after after these last couple of months is when Oakland was the only track, only major track running in Gulfstream, you know, the, I guess Gulfstream and Oakland were the two major tracks running. California wasn't running. New York wasn't running. The the field sizes and the quality of the fields at Oakland Park were unbelievable. Um, 
they were probably second only to maybe a Breeders' Cup day or a Kentucky Derby day with, with the size of the fields and the quality involved. And so the handle was, was uh, enormous. It, it's just almost unheard of the numbers that they were dealing with. And I think what people realized, and it'll be interesting going forward, that, that there may be, you know, there, there, in the past there was so much money out there, you could avoid some of the big horses if you had a nice horse and go to different locations because the money was pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day, you know, once a month there would be maybe a, a $750,000 race for the, the top older horses or, uh, you know, $500,000 race. Or and so the big all, all the big horses went to that track and ran it. Well, now they're, you know, there's maybe three on the same day in different tracks. And so you can avoid it. So the fields are diluted. They're watered down. Um, you know, the big guys don't, you know, the big horses don't meet up with each other until the breeders cup a lot of times. Um, but in the last month and a half, you're seeing now that when one track is running predominantly, one of the big tracks is running all those, those horses from the other parts of the country, the best horses come in and run against each other. So the, the, the quality of racing is, is, you know, risen to a level that you don't see very often and so you you almost wonder in the back of your mind if these tracks are going to start you know thinking about this saying well why do i run against you know take for instance keeneland runs in the spring in lexington kentucky for three weeks then churchill goes in for you know eight weeks but at the same time they're running belmont's running up in new york uh santa anita's running out in california and and you almost wonder now these horses these tracks say you know what i could do better if i ran these three weeks you know, say, for instance, Churchill runs three weeks and then what we'll do is let Belmont run for three weeks and then we'll let Santa Anita run three weeks and they'll make everybody the big outfits and the big horses go to those meets and, and create a better product. And that's that's where you wonder, you know, because the smaller horsemen, the smaller horse outfits are going to have trouble if that becomes a reality. But, uh, you know, the, one of the biggest problems in the horse industry is there's no no uh, national racing commission there's no commissioner that looks over like in baseball and makes the decisions what's best for the industry mm-hmm. so each state has their own you know fiefdom is is they make their own decisions so i don't know if that will happen uh, i think for the sport it would probably be an interesting discussion to have because i think you're going to get more people interested in it and it's going to be um the product you know may be much better but i think what happens is then you get involved with the the owners of the horses and the clients and, and i think the revenue well, the potential revenue income is greatly diminishes because it gets you know lesser racing and, and a lot tougher competition. And so normally, you know, uh, you may have an outfit that makes a million a year. They might, you know, now make six hundred thousand a year because they're they're running up against tougher competition. They can't win all those races every time. So, you know, it it changes the dynamics of of the revenue uh, and the opportunities quite dramatically from a from a um, industry uh, participant than it does on the other side for handicappers and, and gamblers and, and, right. you know, fans from a viewing viewing standpoint. So, and, and track ownership. So there, there are, it's a tricky slope to, to, to try to change all those dynamics, but there, I think there is a discussion going forward probably is that to have somebody oversee all of racing across the country, you know, whether it be uh, giving dates out for racing or whether it be medication policies and testing and, and, you know, distribution of the handle and, and all that and, and the purse structures, I think you're going to see uh, in the future, you're going to see the racing industry go in that direction where they're going to try to get somebody to promote racing from one single entity rather than each state trying to, to create their own product. I'm talking with Tom Van Berg, thoroughbred horse trainer and son of Hall of Fame trainer Jack Van Berg. All right, Tom, uh, 
once you became a trainer, what was your first victory like? And what was the horse? Mm, wow. You know, you know what? I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the first horse that I won with when I took my trainer's license out. I, I, it wasn't one of those monumental occasions um, because I had been training for my dad and, and okay. you know, named assistant trainer. But the, the biggest one probably was after my father passed away. Um, so two years ago, dad was, his health was failing and he died um, December 26th, uh, 2017. And so a few months prior to that, a couple of his larger clients um, sat down with, with myself and, and dad's assistant, Sammy Amarez, who's been, like I said, been with us for almost 40 years and said, you know, what does this look like if your dad, you know, gets hospitalized or, or, you know, at that time, you know, he's getting pretty sick. And they said, if he passed away, what is it something that you want to do, Tom? And, you know, dad asked, they only asked two things. He asked, he had three dogs. He said, make sure my dogs are taken care of and make sure Sammy has a barn full of horses to, to oversee. That was his assistant. And those are the only two things he, he didn't, he didn't say, you know, Tom, I want you to take horses. You know, it was, it was Sammy and the dogs. And that just tells, you know, told me how much the horses meant to him and, and right. how much Sammy meant to him over the years. Yeah. Sammy was always by his side. And so when we sat down with the clients and said, you know, what does this look like? And, and I said, well, you know, if you guys are committed, clients, if you guys are committed and if Sammy's committed, then I, then I will, I will commit and I'll jump in and take over the stable and keep it going just like it has in the past. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Sammy because Sammy, I can't do 24 seven with my family anymore. Uh, three sixty five. It's just, it's not something that I was as willing to, to, you know, right. undertake, but Sammy said, no, he was definitely interested. He wanted to jump, you know, he wanted to keep it going. The clients were, you know, interested in keep it going with us. So we had a barn full of horses with that passed away, you know, 30 horses coming to hot springs, Arkansas. And, you know, from December 26 to, you know, the second week of January, I had to get a business incorporated. I had to get banking accounts opened up. I had to, you know, get invoicing out. I get payroll and, and I had to create a whole business in a matter of about two weeks. You know, I was on the phone with uh, with my attorney and a banker on, my, on the day of my dad's funeral uh, trying to get this thing work comp set up. You can't run unless you have work comp. And so I was getting all set up. So the, the most memorable horse I probably will ever have is the first horse we ran as a stable after dad had passed away uh, was a filly that he had. It was a nice little filly that he had. Her name was Profound Moment. And um, she won. It was our first starter. And I'll never forget uh, the race caller at at Arkansas, you know, was it, the horse looked like she was finished at the top of the stretch. She looked like she was tired, you know, it come off a little layoff because we had shipped from Kentucky to, to, to hot Springs. It was one of the first days of the meet and, um, unless she was getting tired and, you know, they're going to pass her up and she just kept on going. And the announcer said something to the effect that, you know, the jockey's hitting her right-handed and Jack's hitting her left-handed and, <laughs> and uh, said something about the fact that it truly is a profound moment. And, uh, it was just amazing. That was the first horse we started and she won. And, and the, the, the photographer who was at Churchill and at, at Oakland, he's a, a good friend of mine named Curtis Cody does a wonderful job when he got us in the winter circle, you know, everybody had tears in their eyes and he had everybody point up to the sky, you know, to, to point to dad. And when he, when he printed the wind picture, he had, there's a, there's an old picture that he had in his photo stock of dad with his cowboy hat on, you know, smiling. And uh, he took that, superimposed it above the winter circle, and uh, it was everybody pointing up to him. So it was just one of those things that you just you don't have those stories very often, but when they when they happen like that, you know, it's almost like you know he was speaking to us. You and I are Facebook friends. We 
connected after many, many years of being apart. But the, the one thing that I saw, if you don't mind me reading this Facebook post that you did from December 27th, 2019, it says, on the two-year anniversary of Dad's passing, he still reminds us that he will always call the shots. One of the last yearlings that we selected won tonight, and fittingly, his name was JVB. Dad always reminds us that he is watching with some pretty incredible coincidences. Profound Moment wins as our first starter after he passed. Jack Van Berg wins on the Breeders' Cup undercard at Churchill Downs. Betty's Trinity, named after his sister, wins at first asking on his birthday. And now JVB. I can't wait to see how he one-ups himself. Miss you, Dad. Do you still uh, get those kinds of um, supernatural types of, uh, of moments that happen? You know, it's, it's weird. Those, those are the, I haven't had any more since then. But those those are the ones that just it was is it's just amazing how that continually happens. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of my dad's old clients called me the other day, and um, my my stepmother Helen had a set of montages. I don't know if you ever saw them, but they were dads. You know, they had three montages of kind of each part of dad's life. One was one was of the family, one was of his racing, and one was of his, his training center in Kentucky, and. Uh, one of the clients, I didn't even know they had it, but they're out in Washington state. And he called and said, you know, Tom, I'm thinking about getting back into the, the horse game. We want to know if you, you know, pick a couple of horses for us. And so we started talking again. I hadn't talked to him in, oh heck, probably 20 years, you know, since I was out in California and he had one of those sets of the montage. I didn't even know they had it. And it came with a set of cassettes that had the artists narrate why he painted what he painted and what, you know, what it was significant about it. And, and, you know, it's on old cassettes and it was in a leather bound case, brown leather, you know, and it might've had like VB initials in Boston or whatever. And so he was taking a picture of it. He said, he want Tom, I want to send this back to you because your dad gave it to us and I think you should have it. And he was taking a picture of it to send back to me. Well, when he took the picture of it, it's just plain brown leather. When he takes the picture of it, uh, whatever the way that the, the camera lens or whatever was pointing, uh, the leather came out and it was purple and gold. It wasn't brown anymore in the picture. And it's just, it's just bizarre. Some of those things that happen. And, and, you know, like I said, dad was one of those larger than life people. And, and if there's anybody that could, uh, you know, continue on and influence, you know, out there that he'd be, he'd be the one to do it. I mean, he always had a certain way of doing things. And and you knew that, that, uh, if you veered from the course, he would let you know. And, um, it's just crazy how he's, he's, uh, has that way of speaking, you know, still to this day is, there's, there's little things I see every day, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I had a horse. I was telling one of my clients, and I had this horse. He was a real nice horse. We claimed him for 25,000. He's made about 150,000 cents, but he's really smart. And he's just a beautiful animal. And, you know, he had, he had worked a couple times in the morning and he just, it was, a, you know, he did little things differently that I, that he hadn't done before. And, but, you know, every morning we, we, it's religious with dad. You check horses legs every morning before they go out to the track, make sure there's no changes, make sure you don't find any extra heat, any inflammation anywhere, any changes from the day before. And so, you know, we go through and check every leg religiously And this horse. I went to check legs and you, you know, you check, I always check just the way I do it. Is I check their left leg first, you know, check their knee, their ankle, their feet, you know, their tendons, all that. And I check the right leg and it started out this horse. I would check his left leg. And as soon as I go to pick his right, you know, check his right leg, he'd pick it up. Wouldn't let me have it. He wouldn't, you know, let me, te- you know, I checked him while they're sitting on the ground and uh, while they're standing on the ground and he would pick it up and I couldn't check it. So I'd like, okay, put it back down. So we'd get it back down. I'd check it and nothing there, you know, no, no heat, no feeling, no inflammation, nothing that I could, that I could, you know, discern that, that was different. And so 
we just about two weeks and he kept on doing this to me and he'd never done that before. And, um, you know, about two weeks later, I breezed him and he had a little inflammation down just below his ankle. Uh, it's called a XYZ ligament. It's right below their ankle on the bottom of their sesamoid, kind of the back inside of their ankle. And he had some inflammation in there. And when I palpated, it was pretty tender. So I called my vet up. I said, you need to take a look at this. There's, there's something going on. He's been trying to tell me for two weeks and it didn't show up, but now there's something there. And sure enough, we did an ultrasound of it and it just started a little bit of a tear in it. And probably had we run him during that time, he probably would have injured it. And probably, you know, that's kind of a ligament that you don't come back from. You mm-hmm. he'd have been retired. And he was telling me, you know, Hey dummy, you know, look over here for, you know, probably for two weeks, you know, so it's just those weird things that you don't, you don't see, you know, I guess, you know, I guess for a certain point of it, you have to be a little bit intuitive trying to, trying to, to read it. But, you know, it's just like, you know, dad's up there telling me this horse to this horse. Hey, look over here. Well, okay. So, so when Ali Sheba won the Kentucky Derby um, and I did my research prior to us getting on this call, because I, you know, obviously the, those memories are not so fresh anymore, but watching the, the YouTube video of it, uh, your dad told uh, legendary broadcaster Jim McKay that he would win the Kentucky Derby seven more, seven months before he actually did. Feel like going out on a limb and making any kind of prediction for any of the horses in your stables? Oh, not, not mine. Not, no, that, that was that was a very rare. I mean, to call your shot like that. Actually, there was a guy named um, Chris uh, Chris Lincoln who did uh, Bud a Budweiser episode every week uh, about that time. It was kind of like almost like a sports center for horse racing, and. Um, Chris Lincoln would follow horse racing, all the different stakes. He would report on them. And dad, before Jim McKay, even dad had him out a year prior to the Derby. So it would have been, you know, May, almost a year ahead of time out of his training center in, in LaGrange, Kentucky, just outside of Louisville. And there were two horses galloping in company, they, you know, side by side. And they galloped. He had a three quarter mile track and they went around one time. And by the time they got back to each other, it didn't look like one was going faster than the other one. Their strides looked almost identical. But the one was almost an eighth of a mile in front of the other horse. He just did things so much easier than the other horse did. It looked the same, mm-hmm. but he just covered that much more ground. And dad pointed to him and said, that horse will win the Derby next year. And Chris Lake is like, come on, Jack, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no, I'm <laughs> telling you, that horse will win the Derby next year. And that was Ali Sheba. So even probably th- four months before he told Jim McKay that, yeah. he told Chris Lincoln that. And Chris, to this day, you know, I, I haven't talked to Chris in forever. And then Chris, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know where Chris is now. But he, he would tell that story every time. He's like, Tom, I, I've never had anybody call a shot like that. He said, <laughs> your dad was just so confident in that horse that, um, you know, he just, he just knew that that was the one. Well, it, it's, it's, it's an industry that is so risky in a sense. You, I mean, it's, you're controlling it. You're trying to, you know, shape an animal into the potential that it has. Your dad had that success. Your grandfather had that success. But it's not an easy thing to do. So, is it something that crosses your mind? Like, would you like to be there? I mean, I'm sure that's every horse trainer's dream, but, or, or do you have a better perspective based on what you've come to know within the industry? You know, I, 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 I'd love to have a derby horse. I mean, that that's the ultimate goal of anybody, you know, but like I say, the, the difficulty that, that, that is, is the derby is the fact that, you know, back, you know, when, when in the eighties, probably in maybe early nineties, the full crop was, you know, somewhere around 44,000, um, foals born each year. So half of those are male, half of them are filled, you know, have coach, half of Philly. So, so you're looking at 
half of that coal, coal crop, 22,000 of Colts. And the only time you can run the Derby is as a three-year-old. And so you have to be ready and fit and have enough points uh, eligible to make yourself eligible for the Derby on that first Saturday in May. And there are only, you know, 20 that get in um, or 18, you know, depending on the, on the field of what, yeah, 18 or whatever is. So it's not like you have many opportunities. And then, then you, you, you know, compile on top of that, that, that you have a physical, you know, breathing animal that, that it's not a motorcycle or a car that you can tune up and just put a new right. part in and go again. These things, you know, you have to keep them sound. You have to keep them happy. You have to keep them fit. You have to, you know, just the slightest misstep or, or, you know, a step in a, you know, an uneven spot or a rock on the, on the track or whatever it might be, you know, there's, there's been incidents where, you know, a horse drops a rider and is loose and runs into another horse and gets injured. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so many variables that, that can change your path. And so to be able to want to be one of those horses as on the first Saturday in May is, is, is an incredible feat in of itself. And then, then on top of it to, to actually win it. And, and you look some of the biggest stables in the world. Um, you know, I think Todd Pletcher, he, he started, I don't know how many, it was like 28 horses in the Derby before he ever got his first win. You know, he just got it recently. Uh, it may be up into the thirties, how many he started before he actually got one. And that's one of the, one of the, the top trainers in the country that have the best stock. I mean, yeah, it's not like they're buying horses for, you know, 18,000, 20,000, they're buying $500,000 babies, million dollar babies, trying to mold them into Derby winners. And, and, you know, for me or you or anybody else out there for layman's term, that's like saying you, you, you have, you know, LeBron James and, um, Mia Ham have it of a kid, you know, a child. Right. That that child probably has, on general, a, a better chance of being an athlete, a successful athlete, than say, you know, the the local local bank teller with the with the uh, accountant, you know, that never played sports. It's just it, you know, some of it comes down to genes and it's hereditary, and and an athlete produces an athlete, and the same with horses. And so, when you when you have a barn full of five hundred thousand dollar babies or million dollar babies, your chances are going to be better than somebody that doesn't. And, but then you get a guy like that, that has all the, all the, the breeding stock, you know, underneath his, his shed row like that and still has a tough time of winning. So it just tells you, you know, how difficult it is. So, you know, when, when I grew up, you know, in the, in, you know, in my high school years in the eighties, you know, dad was there every year, every other year. So I thought that was just what you did. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't know any, but I didn't realize how difficult it was until I got into the business and, and realized that, you know what, it's, it's a lot more difficult than it looks, you know? So yeah, I'd love, I'd love to have a derby horse. It, it you know, I'm not saying that, I, that, it, that it's going to crush me if I don't. Uh, I just love being around the horses. But you know, we had a, we were fortunate enough to to be involved with a, a filly that was in the Oaks last year, which is the 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 filly, the the female version of the Kentucky Derby, and so that was pretty exciting. So I mean, two years into the game, we have a, a Oaks filly, which was nice, and and she ended up finishing. I think we finished eighth. There was a, a horse that that. Uh, got taken down disqualified because it impeded another horse. So we moved up a spot, but yeah. um, you know, it, it was, you'd like to run better, but it was very exciting to be on that trail and, and uh, to experience the, all that the energy and crazy chaotic uh, hoopla of the press and everything during that week at, uh, at Kentucky, you know, Churchill Downs. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's something that you, I think everybody in this business, if they told you they didn't want to be in the Kentucky Derby, you know, they're crazy. Uh, everybody would love to have that opportunity, but it doesn't come along very often. Yeah, well, and like you said, there's so many variables, and you know, I was introduced to it horse racing from you, 
got to know just the basics of it. And then when I started working at TVG, I learned really how many variables there are from the ownership to the trainers, to the jockeys, to the care of the animal, the transportation of the animal, the conditions of the track, the different types of track, the different lengths. You know, there's so much goes into it. And it's just amazing to hear how you've been able to continue on in this industry. And hopefully in the future, your legacy continues with uh, some of the bigger races. And hopefully one day we'll see in the Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup and all those. It would, it would be fun. I mean, I enjoy it. And, you know, my big thing is, is I love having people, you know, involved in it. And so, you know, when we had the motion to motion on the Kentucky Oaks Trail, I did, and I kind of did some updates on Facebook and had, you know, the news crews come out. And I was, I was very open door policy. And, you know, I heard from people that I'd never met before out in California and from New York. And they're like, you know, this is so great to be able to, to have somebody so open and, and make their horse available to the, to the fans. Whereas, you know, people, a lot of it's shrouded in secrecy and they, they don't want people to get too excited and right. the horse to get too excited. And so, you know, that's, that's my big thing is for this business to, as an industry to succeed and, and, to grow, I think you really have to get the fans to be a part of the experience. And, and that's what I try to do with not only my clients' horses, but with anybody involved if, if, when they come out is to let them under, you know, to see, you know, pull the, the curtain back and show them what, what we do is, you know, on a daily basis and what, you know, what this industry is about. And, you know, you get, there's so many, so many negative storylines. And I think that's just in, in the world in general anymore mm-hmm. is, is news is based on negativity. And the thing that, that Krasinski came out with some good news at SGN. I thought was brilliant because is, you know, you don't have any programs that, that, you know, really tell the good stories, you know, rarely you have one good story to every 10 bad. And so, you know, within the fatalities and the, in the breakdowns of Santa Anita from last year. And then, you know, so the, the two, you know, big trainers out in, on the East coast that, that got in trouble, you know, with, with uh, medications, you, you hear all these negative things about horse racing and then the activists are saying, Oh, we're out here to, we just treat them like commodities and we we're killing horses. And it's, it's so far from the truth. And if people could just get out and see how much care we give these horses and how much they mean to us. And, you know, I have had horses injured in the past and it breaks my heart every time it's like a family member. And then yeah. like, you know, I hate the, I hate the narrative that it's, that we're using these animals for sport, you know, just to, to burn through them to make money and that's not the case i mean i i treat all my horses you know like their family members that they, they get as good as cares as my kids get and and that's not a slight to my children it's that's just how much i carry taking sure. my horses and you know that's that's the one thing if we if we do get there where we're on the trail to the breeders cup or the, the oaks or the derby or, or whatever stake race it's i enjoy the fans be able to take part in it and enjoy the and get to know the the horse and the, and the athletes as, as much as they can as intimately as they can well, and you just mentioned something that, that struck a chord with me, and we talked about it a couple months ago. I'm working on a bull riding documentary, and what you just said is very identical to what the stock contractors say. They're family. They're, they're expensive. They're, they're not, you know, if they don't want to buck, they won't buck. Just like uh, a horse, if he doesn't want to run, he doesn't want to run. So uh, I think people should explore a little bit more about what horse racing and animal athletics is because it's not all that uh, the negativity that is appearing out there exactly you know everybody just you know like we talked earlier about politics and news anymore it's either left or it's right you don't really get the true true story anymore it seems like in the world and and horse racing is no exception you're going to get an extreme view from one side or the other side it seems like and more often than not the negative side is louder and and they they are more adamant about it and then I think horse racing has has had some trouble in the past, and they're still having trouble of of creating a unified front to, to go out there and and show 
you know, what this industry is about and, and how much we care about the, the athletes. And I would invite anybody out to the racetrack to see, you know, how these horses are taken care of. I mean, they, it's like they have manicures daily, basically. They have massages daily. They have, you know, acupunctures. They're, they're adjusted with a chiropractor. I mean, they get IV fluids and, and buildups just to, you know, make sure they have enough nutrients in their bodies and that they're not getting dehydrated during the hot months. I mean, so you, it's just, it's amazing. They're, you know, top performing athletes, just like you would see a, you know, LeBron James or, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a Tom Brady to go on and then and, and play into his forties. Uh, I, I mean, that's what these horses get there. There's no exception to them. I mean, we, we don't do the cryotherapy yet, but they have hyperbaric chambers. You know, it's, they don't have the ice baths per se, but they do ice treatment. It's just amazing that level of care and the technology that they have to take care of these animals is, is so much better than, than, you know, years past. And, and it gets better in every day, you know, and these horses just, it's amazing to see, cause they, they'll talk to you when, when, you know, something's wrong or they're not feeling right. They let you know. And, and when they're feeling really good and you've got everything right and you're hitting on all cylinders, they let you know, you know, so it's fun to be around them, to see them grow and see them develop and, and, when you make decisions, you know, regarding their therapies or, or their training or their nutrition and make changes and see them blossom and develop and, and, you know, see those things come to fruition. It, it is, it's very rewarding. And, and, you know, just like your kid going out and, you know, making a game winning shot, you know, you point them to a race and they point to the race and they end up getting to the wire first and getting their picture taken and, and to see the horse, you know, a lot of them know that they won, you know, they get a little bit more, uh, a little bigger spring in their step and they, you know, their, their head goes up and they, they, you can tell that they have that uh, mentality that they know success when it comes to them right. and, uh, you know, they, they relish it. So it's, it's neat to see. And it's, it, it's very rewarding to, to be able to, to work with them and, and get to have those moments. Well, I can feel your passion for it. So what's the best advice that you've ever been given working in this industry? Probably, you know, don't get too high or don't get too low. You have to keep a a level head. I mean, this, it gets really tough when you, when you're, you know, going through a a streak where you're not winning races. And then on conversely, when you, when you win a bunch of races in a short period of time, usually you get a little high and you you think, well, I got this figured out. And then, then it comes back to reality, you know, crashing back to reality is, is this game is tough. And, you know, it's just like probably like a batting average in baseball. If you're batting 300, uh, you're doing really well. And in this game, if you're probably batting 200, you're doing really well. If you're batting, you know, 170, uh, you're probably more in the general general ballpark of, of successful trainers. So it's not a game set up for uh, a lot of success normally. And so you really have to make sure that you kind of handle the highs with the lows and, and keep your somewhere in the middle. Finally, for someone who is maybe just a casual fan of horse racing, not the handicapper type, not the wagering type, how should they watch horse racing either at the track or on TV? You know, that's always an interesting question because it, it, one thing the horse racing probably does requires a little bit of research, a little bit of, uh, of background work um, because my take on it, if, if I were, weren't in the business, is I like to know the athletes. And so whether you know the jockeys, which are usually the easiest to follow because they do more on them, whether you know the trainer's connections, uh, or whether you know the horses. Now, like you said, they're not gamblers or handicappers. The only way to really know the horses by, is by watching multiple races with the horses being in them. And, and so you kind of get a, a feel for who they are as a, as a racehorse. That's where I really enjoy it, is to see them you know, compete, whereas it, it might be the same two horses running against each other that ran a month ago, and to see how they compete and if they change their strategy or if the distance changes and, and what they do differently, you know, if the pace sets up differently, so it sets up better for one or the other, but that takes time. And so that's hard. So 
what I try to do is just watch kind of the, the beauty of the competition itself. Um, kind of watch what these animals are doing when you're going, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour, uh, and it's an 1,100 pound animal. And these jockeys that are 109 pounds or 112 pounds, 114 pounds, guiding these animals at full speed through each other and around each other and, and making moves, uh, you know, decisions when to, when to make a move or when not to make a move or to wait. Those are the things that, that to me, make the sport just really interesting, even if you're not following a particular horse or a particular jockey. You know, seeing that horse closing, that's one of the big reasons I think Zenyatta was such a fan favorite, even though, you know, she won multiple races in a row, 27 in a row, but she had that style of running where she would fall way back and then she would come up and get just just get up at the wire and, and win it. And so to, to follow her, you would think, oh, she's not going to do it this time. She's not going to do it this time. You're like, oh, wait, maybe she has a chance. You know, then she gets up at the last jump and then she wins it. And you're just like, oh, whew. I think, you know, those are things that, that, that are fun to watch. You know, that horse that goes to the lead and he opens up and he just holds on for the, the late charge for the rest of the field, you know, just to see how those jockeys maneuver those horses and, and, and kind of get maybe an extra 16th of a mile out of a horse that, that probably shouldn't have won that race. And he, and he got him just give that little extra effort for the last, you know, 16th of a mile or that horse, like I said, and it gets way back and that jockey gets him up just in time to win it. It's neat to see when the rider and the, the horse are, you know, riding together in unison and, and competing together and they become one and, and to watch those athletes do it. It's, it's, to me, it's just, it's, it's, it's an art. It really is. Yeah. It's not, it's not science. It's not just like, you know, you, you watch time and time again, you know, the Patriots are down and, and I know, you know, there's, there's fans and haters of the, 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 you know, the Patriots, but Tom Brady, but how many times that he makes that exact pass when he needs to at the end of a game to, to keep the rally going or to yep. win the game. It's just, you know, some, some things just happen and, and whether it's meant to be or they've done so much practice and preparation that, that it just comes out at that time. It's, that's kind of the way you, I watch horse racing is, is if everything comes together at the right time and the right moment and everybody does their part, then it's amazing to watch. Well, Tom, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and uh, thank you for your friendship. I just wanted to let you know that my parents will tell you hello. And, uh, <laughs> so am I. I will. And, uh, and if anyone is, is interested in, uh, Tom Van Berg's horses, if they're on the track, you can look at the silks, which are, as you mentioned, purple and gold with a mm -hmm. purple V on the back. Yep. So, they're gold with the purple V and purple sleeves, purple sleeves. So that's a, a good way to identify Tom's horses. So thanks again, Tom. I appreciate your time. And, um, I look forward to continuing our friendship going forward. All right. Good talking to you, Don. Take care. Best of luck with your horses, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in the Kentucky Derby one day. All right, I hope so. It'll be fun. <laughs> I, ho I hope you'll be able to make it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, if that's an invite, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> You're invited. <laughs> All right, Tom. Thanks. Take care, Don. That was Tom Van Berg, thoroughbred horse trainer and my good friend. I've known Tom since the fall of 1987, and after losing touch for almost 20 years, we picked up the conversation right where we left it. Tom is truly one of the most genuine people I know, and he has an ability to welcome people into his circle without any reservation. And despite his family lineage of being great horsemen, he is humble and wants people to enjoy the sport of kings that he's grown to love. I'm hoping one day soon he'll have a Kentucky Derby or a Triple Crown contender in the near future. If you'd like to know more about Tom, visit his Facebook page, at Jack Vanberg Racing. And if you'd like to find out more about his father, Jack, check out... Jack, From Grit to Glory, The True Story of Jack Van Berg, an American horse racing legend by Chris Katulak. 
The next Ports in the Making podcast will be coming at you every other Thursday through the summer with an occasional weekly episode depending on when my guests are able to join me. So if you want to be notified, be sure to subscribe. For back episodes, you can visit sportsinthemaking.com or visit my Facebook page where I post sports-related content. And if you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions for my guests, I'd love to include them in a future episode with your name. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like it, share it, and leave positive reviews on your social media channel. Also be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes and you can catch up on previous ones there as well. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.